Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Hi, I'm David Naiman, the host of the radio show and podcast Between the Covers. People are often surprised to learn that this is not my day job, that I don't get paid. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm not here to ask you for an income. Up until now, hosting the podcast has involved only nominal fees, but the podcast has seen explosive growth this year. Listenership has quadrupled in less than 10 months. And these once nominal fees have grown to many hundreds of dollars, which could easily become thousands next year and which I'm paying myself. So I'm here today talking to you in the hope of creating a sustainable model for me to nurture the podcast success. If you value these interviews, whether with great fiction writers such as George Saunders, Laurie Moore, or Juno Diaz, science fiction icons Ursula K. Le Guin, William Gibson, and Neil Stevenson, or genre-bending essayists and poets such as Claudia Rankin, Maggie Nelson, and Mary Rufel, I hope you'll become a patron of Between the Covers. Your per-episode contribution would be your way to participate in the show's long-term health. Please take a moment and either go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash between the covers or to david dot com slash support and give your support and enjoy today's program these stories are about the id unleashed they're about the wildness contained in all of us i think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world i think it's really hard to live without stories and if somebody tells you like this is the way you're going to end up you're lucky if you can forget that you know there's me and then there's writer guy me and then there's me working which is the absence of me it's just story had no idea how to write a novel didn't know if it would ever come to fruition was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself they're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Rob Spillman, is the editor and co-founder of Tin House Magazine, executive editor of Tin House Books, and co-founder of the Tin House Summer Writers Workshop. Tin House was the recipient of the 2015 Firecracker Award for General Excellence and has been honored frequently in Best American Stories, Best American Essays, Best American Poetry, O. Henry Prize Stories, and the Pushcart Prize Anthology. Rob Spillman himself was the 2015 recipient of the Penn Nora Magid Award for Editing, as well as the 2015 inaugural Vito Award from Vita Women in Literary Arts. And Rob Spillman's writing has appeared in Book Forum, The Boston Review, The New York Times Book Review, Rolling Stone, Spin, Sports Illustrated, Time, Vanity Fair, Vogue, among other magazines, newspapers, and essay collections. He writes the Read Politic column for Guernica Magazine, is the editor of Gods and Soldiers, the Penguin Anthology of Contemporary African Writing, and is on the board of the Community of Literary Magazines and Small Presses, the Brooklyn Book Festival Literary Council, Narrative 4, 
and is the chair of Penn's membership committee. But Rob Spielman is here today to talk about his first book, All Tomorrow's Parties, a memoir, 10 years in the making, which has received starred reviews from Booklist, Publishers Weekly, and Kirkus, and early praise from writing luminaries Anthony Doerr, Nick Flynn, and Rachel Kushner. Kirkus says All Tomorrow's Parties is a coming-of-age story couched in a travel narrative, one that deftly evokes one of the major historical moments of the 20th century, a richly detailed and always engaging memoir on artistic discovery. And Anthony Doerr adds that if you've ever been young, in love, and desperate to live an authentic life, this book is for you, a ravishing memoir about a young man's quest for art, meaning, and a place to call home. Welcome to Between the Covers, Rob Spillman. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here. So All Tomorrow's Parties is composed of two intertwining narratives. Both, I think you could consider travel narratives in a sense, and both involve searching for identity, one taking place during your childhood and another as a young married adult. Let's start with your childhood, partly because growing up in Cold War Berlin with your dad kind of feels like a golden age that casts a shadow over a lot of the rest of the book. So tell us why your family was in Berlin and and, and what it felt like. Um, my parents are classical uh, musicians, and they went over there on Fulbright scholarships after going to music school. And at the time, and it's still this way, uh, Germany is, is a much better place for beginning musicians, especially classical musicians. There are you know, small opera halls and music you know, outlets all over Europe and particularly in Germany. So it was a good place to launch their careers. And Berlin was particularly cheap because it was at the epicenter of the Cold War. And it was this cultural mecca at the same time because of the post-war treaty, it made Berlin a neutral city. So that if you were a resident of Berlin and you were German, you didn't have to serve in the army. So a lot of liberal Germans moved there as well, and it was cheap. And so it created this sort of kind of artistic foment. So it was a really exciting place to be, even though it was 200 miles inside of communist territory. That's a really weird thing to imagine, that island of, of liberal yeah. liberal artistic expression there. Yeah, it was, it was a very weird mix of, you know, there was a huge U.S. Army presence, but there was also all this kind of liberal craziness because there were these giant loft spaces that were very cheap and uh, expat musicians from all over the world and artists, visual artists were there as well. So, Can you speak a little bit about when your um, parents split and you're living with your dad and mm -hmm. what life was like with him in, in the opera and, and you you living in Berlin with yeah, your, my your dad? Parents, I have no memories of my parents together. They split when I was very young. And uh, my mother went back to the U.S. and I stayed with my father, who is gay. So I kind of grew up backstage in the gay opera world of Berlin, you know, both backstage and on stage. I was in a lot of kids' roles as uh, uh, because I was around and I could sing and, you know, I was available and it was fun. It was fun. To, so I liken it to sort of being like Eloise in the plaza, but, you know, if the plaza was mostly gay and filled with like opera stars, you know, and, yeah. uh, opera people. So yeah. it did not prepare me well for the for the rest of the world. <laughs> but uh, at the time, I thought it was really fabulous. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm also an only child, so I had nothing to compare it to. It felt like you were treated in a lot of ways like a young adult, even when you were a kid. Like you had a lot yeah. of a lot of freedom to be with adults in this art world, yeah. even from a young age. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, 
with that, I just had to behave. I had to be basically, you know, invisible or act like an adult. Yeah. So I didn't really particularly have a childhood. Um, I do love the scene in All Tomorrow's Parties when you go to East Berlin with your dad and you're mm-hmm. smuggling uh, you're smuggling currency over so yeah. that you can buy buy things at a better exchange rate. Yeah, um, that was because they never searched uh, kids. So... And you had to, you were forced to exchange your money one for one. But if you smuggled it in, you could then, you know, use it. And uh, these Germans loved Western currency. Well, one um, of the the really early on uh, scenes that adds a lot of uh, narrative heft to the to your memoir is when you go when your parents split, but then sort of inexplicably to you, you have to move to America to live with your mom, and it doesn't seem like you really grasp the why of that at the time. But you also realize really quickly that you can't speak the language of of people your age, right. in, particularly American people your age. Yeah. And I would love to, for you to just touch on that a little bit because it feels like in a way that Berlin becomes a sigil for you, like the 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 sign you you're not American, you're not German, and being Ber- a Berliner is actually something quite distinct. Yeah, yeah. I that's that's well put because I when I came to the US I hadn't watched any US TV and that was kind of the lingua franca of my peers. And so I really I didn't know what Charlie's Angels was or The Mod Squad or you know I Love Lucy. So or even you know Scooby Doo cartoons like no, I just I had nothing. <laughs> and so I didn't know what people were talking about, yeah. you know. And But you kind of had to know. And I had to know because yeah. that's what people were talking about. So right. I I started ro- watching reruns obsessively like I would you know whenever I could I would watch reruns just to try to figure out what the hell (laughs) people were talking about and I just you know it took me a while to get up to speed and and also I had to obsessively watch sports because that was the other thing you know people talked about and I hadn't watched any baseball or football I'd only watched soccer so yeah um, I was just I was culturally illiterate even though you know, both my parents are American and I, you know, I don't, I didn't speak with any kind of accent. So I looked and, you know, walked and talked like a normal American, but I just, I didn't know what anybody was talking about. Yeah. And it feels like Berlin becomes this really uh, interesting metonym or, or symbol in the book in the sense that you have you and America not feeling American, your parents on different continents, you have this divided city that you feel connected to that's mm-hmm. also an island within yeah. a country. Right. Which right. you it almost feels like you're that island yeah. here there in America. Absolutely. And I you know, it became the older I got, the more I grasped onto it as my true home and my you know, I'm really a Berliner, you know, even yeah. though it was it was myth making, you know, I was, you know, building it up. It was right. my search for home and I, I put a lot of weight into Berlin. So if we um, flash forward to the other thread of all tomorrow's mm-hmm. parties, you're you're in your twenties, mm-hmm. you're in New York with your wife, Alyssa Chappelle, and mm-hmm. you have a pretty good life, it sounds like, going on, but here Berlin sort of disrupts it after you've been in America for a long time. So perhaps could you paint the uh the picture of your life? pre the siren call of Berlin and, right. and then how that um, sort of unsettled what you were doing. Yeah, I, I moved to New York with no idea how publishing works, but just sort of these sort of romantic notions of having read about the Beats and, you know, Patti Smith and, you know, all these uh, people were living really large in New York. And I that's what I wanted. And I lucked into a few things when I moved there. Mainly, I fell in love when I was 21 and got married when I was 23. 
and moved to the East Village. And because we were the only couple that anyone knew, uh, we were kind of a center of, of a group of friends because yeah. we were the only, literally the only couple. And when people moved to New York, they would sleep on our sofa. And and since we were right in the center of East Village, uh, Sonic Youth, the band, lived right around the corner from us. And so we would run into them and say, hey, where are you playing tonight? And they'd be like, oh, CBGB. So, great, let's, all right, we're there. And so we would see them all the time and all the other bands in the neighborhood. And uh, so it was just like a very vibrant scene. But I also, uh, I sort of chafed at it. I really didn't think, you know, it, it felt dead to me. I felt I had these sort of mythic you know, ideas that I would like walk into the Cedar Tavern and get in a fist fight over aesthetics with like Frank <laughs> O'Hara. You know, I just had this. And that wasn't happening. That wasn't happening. Yeah. You know, that, that was a different era. And, you know, I also had this, you know, this, what I couldn't get my head around was like all my heroes had created their own scenes. They hadn't like walked into a scene and, and been adopted by it. They right. just, they and their friends made the scene. So I kept putting this, like, you know, I kept having Berlin in the, in the back of my head. And then when the wall came down, I just, I thought this was a, a sign, yeah. you know, a cosmic sign that, you know, I'm not meant to be in New York, but I actually really need to step into this void that is Berlin right after the the wall came down. And how was that negotiation in your marriage when you're like, okay, uh, our life's going well, but it's just <laughs> not, there's something, you know, that I can't quite describe that's missing here. Yeah, we, we were, we were kind of young and foolish at the time. And, um, and Elisa trusted me, bless her, uh, that, that you know, things would be okay if we, and that we could come back, uh, that we weren't abandoning everything. But she'd made a real leap of faith. And for her, she had grown up with a very stable, loving family, you know, very, you know, the kind of the opposite of mine. She grew up in one place outside of Wilmington, Delaware, with incredibly great parents. I, I mean, I love her parents. They're fabulous people, and her sister is fabulous. I mean, I was I was always on edge around her family because mm. I didn't understand what a normal right. nu- nuclear family was and, um, at first. And, you know, they were really, you know, like, when's, when's the shoe going to drop? But it never did. So she was actually open to adventure from a different perspective. Like, she, because she had had so much stability, she was yeah. willing to to go with it. One of the really delightful things in the memoir, I think, is how you imagine what these other uh, inspiring artists or writers did Mm -hmm. and use that as motivation yourself. I wondered if that came from um, having a dad like your dad. How many writers, I don't know any other writers or editors who have a father who who lived for their art, who who would do everything based on that and based on passion, not based on uh, what's best in terms of being secure with your finances or what's best and most reasonable or stable, which seems like that must have been a a model for perhaps looking at these other models. Absolutely. I mean, my my father was incredibly... He's still alive. He's still playing music. Um, Sorry about that. Um, He's still, you know... um, very much living for his art. He just turned 80 and he, you know, he's off to Texas to judge a piano competition. And, yeah. Um, but, you know, as a young kid, it was really romantic to watch him just, 
you know, age 40, you know, sleeping on a futon and <laughs> doing exactly what he wanted to do. Yeah. You know, like he didn't consider what he did work at all. And right. When he was teaching, you know, 16 hour days, he would just, he loved it. He could, he could just keep going, you know? So that was, that was definitely a model for me. And, uh, and I, I think I also, my parents did not communicate after they divorced. They just sort of handed me back and forth and they both, I think sort of overcompensated for the other one, how they thought the other one was parenting. So my father was even more lenient than he thought <laughs> he needed to be. And my mother was, was kind of more strict and, and rule abiding yeah. than she needed to be because she They're imagining the... They were imagining how the other one was parenting, yeah. basically. So. Well, before you read from All Tomorrow's Parties... Yeah. Um, Maybe you can set up what Berlin was like when you went back. So here we're talking about the wall going down, but it's but Germany is not unified yet. So it's this weird limbo period. What was that period like? So yeah, it was a very unique historical bubble because when the wall came down in the fall of '89, um, what happened was that quickly the two countries agreed to unify, but it, it wasn't set until the fall of 1990. And the Western authorities didn't have authority to come over yet. So they couldn't police the east side. And in the east, a lot of the police had basically run away from their posts because they weren't being paid anymore because the East German government had run out of money. So there was this power vacuum that was happening. And in that power vacuum, a lot of anarchists moved in and took over abandoned buildings and painted the buildings pink and flew uh, anarchist flags out of them. And then uh, skinheads would come in from the north, and these were a lot of laid-off factory workers because the factories were shut down, and they would try to firebomb the skinheads. And so a lot of Westerners stayed away from this because it just wasn't. It yeah. wasn't safe. So Westerners stayed away, and also the, the large Turkish popula population of, of the West also didn't come in uh, to, you know, because in the West, West Berlin, there are Turkish kebab stands everywhere and things like that. The, none of that moved into the East until unification. So it was this very chaotic scene that we stepped into, and we got, we joined the anarchists on this anarchist block and uh, had a had a really incredibly cheap apartment. In, and in all there. these strange, um, not really entrepreneurial moments, but moments where people are like creating wine bars or restaurants or right. they harve just... harvesting uh, free furniture for yeah. their, their apartments yeah. out of burnt out buildings. Yeah. And um, well, also the these Germans, because... They could go now go over to the West and buy really cheap furniture from the equivalent of like a Kmart. They would put their old, beautiful furniture on the street yeah. just to get rid of it because yeah. it was like the sign of the old. And so we had... Your apartment we, sounded amazing. Amazing. You know, we had Bauhaus <laughs> furniture right. and, you know, fainting couches. And, you know, it was just all just dumped like literally down the block from yeah. us. And it was it was crazy. Well, could you read us a scene Sure. From, from... Um, that moment? Yeah. Why don't I read like right from the, right near the beginning where um, some kids have invited us to a rave and, and we have no idea what a rave is because it's 1990 and uh, we're kind of clueless and they take us to the sub-basement of, of an abandoned warehouse. So, was gibt's, I ask, and our guide snorts. He explains in German, which I quickly translate for Elisa, that we are in an old ball-bearing factory. 
He tells me this as he dances across long, sagging boards stretched between cinder block islands. Our flashlight beams ricochet off the oily water, which has a ferrous, noxious reek, and I picture my foot dissolving in it as if it were sulfuric acid. A faint, far-off beat, a fast, steady thump-thump-thump matches the pulse in my ears. Is there another room to the factory? I call after our guide, repeating the question in English for Elisa. No, no, he replies. The party isn't in here. This is only the passageway. Before I can begin to think about where we are heading, on the other side of the waterlogged basement, a six-foot-wide hole opens into a dank tunnel. The thump-thump-thump of music is now clear, and up ahead a bright light pulls me forward. Entschuldigung, excuse me, my new friend says, shining his flashlight over my shoulder. I turn around and Elisa catches up to us. She gives me her, what have you gotten me into, look, and I give her my, you agreed to this, look back. I also silently give her what I hope is reassurance, and I think she's on the same page, but I really don't care because we're obviously on the cusp of something weird and quite possibly wonderful. Where are we, I once more ask our guide, who snorts again and moves aside so that we can be the first to step through the hole and into a cavernous space constructed of gray granite blocks, the vaulted ceiling sweeping up a good hundred feet. People are dancing everywhere on piles of paving stones and railroad ties and in the long trench that, turns, that runs through the center of the giant space. They are dancing to the loud, steady, bass-heavy electronic music, something that sounds like craftwork crossed with Donna Summer. The dancers cast huge shadows from the low, icy white strobe lights ringing the room. Atop a Lincoln Log-like construction of scavenged railroad ties perched two sets of turntables and two young men with black bubble headphones who are bobbing along to the music. Where are we? I shout. Under the wall, our guide yells. This is an old subway station from before the war, closed off for 40 years. Now we break through and have a rave. I never want to leave, I say out loud. I think. I can't believe this. We are literally between countries, under two countries. I close my eyes and let the concussive bass vibrate through my body. I can feel the beat of my heart aligning with the beat of the music. I am dissolving, breaking into a million particles. I am nowhere. I am home. You've been listening to Rob Spillman read from his memoir, All Tomorrow's Parties. That that section's an interesting section because it touches on a, a recurring motif in the memoir also, where you've expressed a fear in the book around an inner emptiness, um, even once, I think, wondering whether you had a soul when you were a kid, um, that you weren't passionate about anything. And yet there was a flip side to that also, which felt like it was part of the same dynamic. But when you're partying under the wall, there's a blissfulness around the the lack of location and then the nothingness of the location you you could be anywhere and and also there's no it's nowhere right and similarly there's a scene with in when you're in school in america there's a hazing with a spanking um right. gauntlet and right. you escape and go dive into the ocean and there's a sense of bliss sort of in self-obliteration right so both a pleasure in that and also a sort of uh, ongoing anxiety. Can you talk a little yeah, bit about that? Yeah, that was that was definitely a, a theme. You know, I, I sought to either rebel or to escape, and my escapes were either through reading at first. You know, I started working at a used bookstore in Baltimore, and that just sort of really fed my my uh, ability to escape. And that's where I became a real reader. 
and also through running. I became a long-distance runner in high school, and by college I was running 90 miles a week, and I would run into the mountains in Colorado and try to try to get lost and try to obliterate myself through that. And yeah. then also through um, punk music. I you know, listen to incredibly loud, kind of violent music and go to you know, hardcore shows in D.C. And it was sort of everything that I was not allowed to be in Baltimore. It was kind of... Um, and also really different than the opera world at yeah. the same time. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, there was this, uh, there was this dialectic going on of... of you know, wanting to express myself and express my rage, but not feeling like I was able to. So these were my, you know, sort of places I channeled it. Yeah. And seeking oblivion or escape was was what I was after. And tell us a little bit about the structure of the chapters. You have, at the beginning of each chapter, you have a quote, and you also have a soundtrack song. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? And and why did you choose those as the, the be, as the way to sort of orient us well, a lot of the, the sort of anxiety of the book and my, my up until I was 25 was feeling, again, like what you said was that I didn't, uh, that I didn't have any of my own feelings, that I didn't have an authentic self. And I was living through others and through uh, either books or music. And so the soundtrack and the opening quotes are kind of a way of re kind of reinforcing that and yeah. maybe also even a way of continuing to hide behind them and fighting against them even as i'm writing the book yeah. you know the, I, I i like them and i and i love that i saw that you, that grove atlantic made you a tour shirt yeah for your tour <laughs> yes so you're I, you're I, doing your rock your rock tour now absolutely i i just sort of jokingly threw that out to to the publicists <laughs> and they were like no that's awesome yeah. they, they made me a tour t-shirt yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. That's all I've ever wanted. Yeah. And, and how did you arrive on the title uh, and using that uh, Velvet Underground song as the title? Um, well, music is you know, one of the main obsessions of the, of the book and um, one of my obsessions. And I, uh, I love the Velvet Underground. And I thought that song in some way encapsulated the struggle of the book of living for tomorrow versus living for today. Yeah. And, uh, that sort of... Um, sad recognition of that. Right. And, you know, how uh, that fact. So that's what I grasped grasp onto. Well, it was interesting looking at other interviews of you in the past. If we mm. ignore the interviews in the last two weeks around this book, right. almost all of them, close to all of them, are about are you as an editorial gatekeeper. Right. And we see the same sort of questions come back over and over again. What sort of stories do you look for? What are common mistakes that writers make? Uh, a focus on on the art and right. the object, and the creative act and and um, publishing. Um, but here we are um, now. You on the other side. Yeah. And this book took you ten years to write, yeah. which made me wonder, as a writer, what sort of craft uh, challenges you came across that you had to grapple with in finding this book's form. Yeah, a lot, <laughs> a lot. Um, <laughs> You know, it, one of the problems of, you know, working in publishing and being an editor is I, I know too much. You know, I, I know I'm a pretty good self-editor and know what works and what is not working. And um, so the first seven years of working on this book, I was just really I was trying to write it linear and chronologically. And the, there was just no energy to it. I felt like there was just something something wrong and um i mean it was 
it was productive failure in a way in that I was interrogating myself and my feelings, which is what I was trying to do. But I think I rounded a corner at some point where um, I really didn't care if it was going to get published or not. Mm. And I think that was a breakthrough for me is mm. that working and publishing, you just, you, you're constantly surrounded by the noise of publishing and books that are coming out and, and you can lose sight in, in um, the art of things and that, that it became much more personal for me and that I really wanted to interrogate my own feelings about the time and my obsession with Berlin and my obsession of living an authentic life. Those became much more important to me. And so the last three years, when I settled on the form of being, the struggle for me was to, to put Berlin more forward, mm. especially the, the present tense, you know, 1990 chapters. I wanted them more forward and I could never figure them out. And then I sort of landed on this alternating form and um, shifted the, the, those scenes into the present tense, which created more energy. And then I found when I was alternating that I was able to refer, I was able to mess with time in a way because I could refer chapter to chapter to things that hadn't even happened yet or comment on them before they happened and yeah. make allusions to them, which I hadn't even thought about. Well, when we had Lacey M. Johnson on, she mm. talked about writing against chronology as because it mimics the way our memory works, too. Right. So if you're writing, not writing in the present moment, yeah. even if you're using the present tense, it yeah. allows that sort of mind movement. Right. Which yeah. is, yeah, which is absolutely. And, you know, as much as I know as an editor, I just, I couldn't learn unless I actually did it. Right. You know, that, yeah. that's what it came down to. And then, uh, even then, I loved being edited. I just, I had the greatest time being edited, actually. It was just such a, an honor and pleasure to have someone take your work seriously. Yeah. And point, and especially, I think, especially for personal material, it's really hard for you to figure out what is important and not important. And, and, a big breakthrough for me came when I read Vivian Gornick's The Situation in the Story. That is really weird that, because I, that's my next question. Really, that was I a, swear to God. <laughs> really? That was, a, that was a pivotal book for me because I was just, you know, one of the, the challenges of memoir is that the goalposts are, are constantly moving. You know, you wake up every day, you're a different person, you have more knowledge and right. you can just keep bringing in more knowledge. and. And her kind of genius and the simple genius is like you just have to separate, you know, your situation and use fictive tools and also create a persona. Right. You know, yeah. even if the persona is you, but it's you at what, where are you fixing the persona? And so for me, it was age 25 and not letting in knowledge after that. And Well, I'll just read my next question okay, just, yeah, just for fun. Just so you can like... But even though I, I kind of think you already answered it, but I was going to say that coincidentally, I've been reading that book, The Situation mm-hmm. in the Story, and she'd mentioned one incident of someone who took a long time to write their memoir yeah. uh, and that it wasn't because they didn't know what they wanted to write about, but it was because they hadn't created the persona, which is both you and not you at the same yeah. time, but also sort of hones in the 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 path of inquiry right. and everything shapes around a specific like act of discovery for that persona yes and that was absolutely that i love that a, book that was a light bulb that went off when i read her because she's so simple about you know it's so simple and clear her art, you know articulation yeah. of that problem and, but it's like you read yeah you read it and you're like of course yeah but it's not that simple at no, the same time not, and also she that she uses her own work 
as to illustrate it is, is also like I failed with my first book, but I succeeded in my second. Right. The book know? about Egypt where yeah. she, she couldn't find the right voice. Yeah. 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 And also, you know, what I, what was interesting to me too, when, once I did that was like, um, I was able to use, uh, I was able to winnow away an awful lot. And, uh, metaphor I use is, uh, that your narrative has to be like a taut string. You know, everything has to, to, you know, contribute to the tautness of the string going through the, your book. If it doesn't contribute to the themes of the book, it unfortunately has to go away. Right. You know, or if it happens after your, you know, fixed self, you know. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Rob Spillman about his memoir, All Tomorrow's Parties. Tell us about Coffee and Absinthe, the book that you were working on as as a young adult, um, that never came to be, but right. was was your project at some point in, and for a while. Yeah, it was um, it was my way of I guess it was like apprentice writing, and it was a way to also channel all of my kind of my split personality in a way, my uh, sort of dreamy. Uh, dreamy escapist side, art, you know, art for art's sake side, which was absinthe, and then my sort of uh, overdrive, in, hyper-engaged, uh, revolutionary side, which was coffee. And uh, I, it was a novel that was embodied by the spirits of coffee and absinthe. So, And have you looked at it? I haven't with- looked at it in... Like thirty years, I, I'm, I'm really afraid to. I'm really, but it really, still exists. It's it, somewhere, yeah, yeah. It's in a box it's somewhere. Not in, in the fire? No, 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 no. no. I wouldn't throw it out because I'm really curious to, like, you know, yeah, see how cringeworthy it is. Yeah, you know. What's well, one of the the pressures for the book that I think is really great from the reader perspective is both you and your wife are really dedicated to live the life of artists, but throughout the book, Elisa's regardless of what adventure you are on, she's in the background, uh, like working hardcore. Mm-hmm. And, um, so she's, she's doing all these adventures, but she's, she's like, she's doing it. And there's this background pressure because you're not, and you're, you're doing this sort of internal struggle, mm. wanting to be doing what she's doing, but unable to be. Yeah. And with that in the background and you in the foreground, it, it feels like this, this coiled spring that's right. <laughs> yeah 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 it, you know i i it was funny because i i talked a big game at the time you know we're going to go live a revolutionary life and be artists and like really do it and she was actually doing it while i was like you know, right you know uh parading around you know i love the faulkner quote of uh don't be a writer be writing you know, and you know, I was a writer, and she was actually writing. Right. You know. Well, and and she's she's a formidable writer and editor mm-hmm. in her own right. She co-founded Tin House. She was mm-hmm. senior editor at the Paris Review. She's contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Has written several critically acclaimed books. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was curious about her in real life outside of the book, with all of these skills, but also she's this character. Right. And. The raw, well, I think in the end, it feels like the book is a love letter to your wife. In any given moment, Rob Spillman, the persona, has varying feelings about what's <laughs> going on. Um, so I was curious about whether you sought her, her input 
or because of her being, you know, editor, writer, and character, if you had to shield this from her, because that would just kill the whole, yeah, the whole deal. That's a good question. Um, no, we show each other all of our work, and um, at f- when I first showed it to her, uh, she she said, "Who is this incredibly boring, flat, lifeless <laughs> character? Really? That is supposed to be Elisa? You know?" <laughs> and I was like, Ooh. "And I was trying to shield her in the writing, and she's yeah. like, this is just dead on arrival, like you know." Like, I would never say any of this. And, you know, she got in there and just hacked it up. And uh, I'm like, okay. So she gave me the permission to actually, you know, write it as it was. Um, yeah. And But she kept pushing. She pushed me the entire time. So that wasn't, yeah. a, that wasn't fraught. It was definitely fraught. It was it, fraught. Because, okay. she, uh, you know, she can criticize me like no other person. Right. I mean, we've been married 27 years, you yeah. know. So, <laughs> um, so she, like, up until... Uh, I signed off on final pages in January. She yeah. was like, this is a lazy phrase or this is, you know. Huh. So she was an editor. Oh, yeah. One of the editors. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, because she's, she's very protective. And, yeah. you know, uh, it's really easy to write the negative reviews for both of us. You know, like, right. why didn't this editor edit himself? <laughs> you know, we're, we're both thinking that. So right. she's she's more protective than, yeah. than anyone. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of... You do a lot of danger seeking in in the memoir, and there's a lot of politically volatile situations, but also the car crashes and a variety of other things that happen in the book. Um, but when you were interviewed in, by Penn and they asked you what's the most daring thing you've written, you said this memoir, and part of that was around I think writing about people you love and people close to you, and that it was a uh, Intense to show this to your parents, for instance. Can, can you talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you know, I, I speak in public all the time. I do festivals all the time. But I'm usually out there promoting other people's work. I'm not usually talking about my own work. And this is, you know, just really exp- it's exposing, you know. So, yeah. and that's just not how I usually am, you know, so it was, it was hard to, and also hard to be honest and it's just not a family thing. So it was difficult and then very difficult showing my parents. I was very worried about how they would react. And my, uh, my father, um, came back first and he said, Oh wow, you made art out of your, out of your experience. That's great. You know, um, that must've felt great. Yeah. It was in, you know, he had some, he had some corrections and some fact-checking things, and so I'm like, "Did I really do that?" And I'm like, "Yeah, Dad, you really did that." Um, <laughs> uh, and then my mother, on the other hand, uh, really disliked the book. And um, as soon as she was done reading it, she still lives in Baltimore. Got on a train, came to New York, and sat down at my kitchen table with the manuscript and went over it with me for five straight hours. Wow. And uh, what she didn't like and what, you know, what was a surprise to her and what, you know, it was a little... That's on stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It was... <laughs> so I'm ready for the worst review humanly possible. I've, yeah. Like, I've you, been through you, it. You've been through it. I've been through the worst review possible. Well, this is um, like a really a live question for anyone writing memoir, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, and I don't think everyone has, anyone has the same answer, but do you have a guiding principle when you're writing your own story, but it's also the characterization of other people's lives? Yeah. I was lucky in that I, I 
you know, working with writers like Lacey Johnson and you know, Nick Flynn or Dorothy Allison, you know, they're very good. They've been through it, so they're able to give me advice. Right. Dorothy Allison actually had a really great piece of advice is that you have to be able to sit in the room with the people you're writing about. So I thought she meant that metaphorically, <laughs> and then it came to pass. You really so, did sit with uh, them. Yeah, so yeah. I'm actually going to go see her tomorrow in, in uh, San Francisco, so I'll be able to tell her, like, I didn't think you meant that, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> literally. Um, but, yeah, it, it you know, the, I thought that was good advice, and also I really wanted to be part of the reason it took me for so long to write this book is like I really it was an exercise in empathy for me too. It's like I really wanted to understand what it was like for my parents at that time, and I think having kids of my own really helped that too. Yeah. I, you know, being six thousand miles from you know anyone, any family, and then suddenly you're divorced, and you know financially dependent on the person you're divorced from, you know, it must've been, you know. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the Vivian Gornick book. Were there any, um, actual memoirs that, um, were inspirations or like ghost memoirs that, that f you feel like you were in conversation with at all? Yeah. Uh, the main one is stop time by Frank Conroy hmm. from 68, you know, so kind of a throwback as, uh, it, it starts in, uh, it starts in action when he's much older and it's just sort of this violent action and it's just a one page prologue and then it flips to his childhood and you spend 300 pages trying to figure out why, why that prologue. Wow. And it was kind of amazing. And That's... also it's, there's no, it's just beautifully written and there's no uh, hyperbole to it. Hmm. You know, that I thought that was great because there've been all these, you know, the running with scissors model of, you know, extreme woe is me. There's no woe is me, even though he had a really messed up childhood. Yeah. There's there. definitely not woe is me in all tomorrow's parties yeah, either. Yeah. Good. Another motif is, is, which I think is going back to Berlin. When you think of like Berlin being this artistic hotbed, but also this um, politically unique scenario that you're always looking for the nexus of those two uh, of art and politics and you see that in your other pursuits, like read the read politic column for Guernica with your work at Penn, with the uh, contemporary African writers, um, with your work at Vita. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about that? What, what draws you to that specific nexus? Yeah, I, um, I think it's basically to use my privilege and power for good. You know, I, I'm very yeah. lucky that I've risen to a certain position. And even when I didn't have power, I was always trying to figure out a way to affect change, you know, not just write for writing's sake, you know, and I was always trying to figure out how to get my agenda in front of as many writer, as many people as possible. Like, mm. so like early on, I, when I was freelance writing before I started Tin House, I figured out how to get Leonard Peltier into Vogue magazine. And I, I did that by writing about Robert Redford financing a documentary about Leonard Peltier. So I went to Vogue and I said, Robert Redford, Robert Redford, Robert Redford, comma, Leonard Peltier. And so they sent up a, a uh, crew to shoot Redford at his ranch, you know, out in Idaho. And I wrote 2,000 words about Leonard Peltier. 
So I, I've huh. always had that impulse of like trying to get my own, you know, agenda through. It's also cool how, you know, with the Vita count, and for people who don't know what that is, the ta- sort of the tallying of bylines for different publications and, and by gender and now also by people of color and, and other metrics. Um, when those counts came out several years ago, Tin House didn't only respond, but sort of went an extra an extra level of response. Mm-hmm. And I, could you talk a little bit about that in terms of yeah. how you, you looked at the whole... Um, manner of how to choose and then in terms of like the disparity even around submission yeah we we actually did really well relatively speaking in the first count but we were still had a gender imbalance and i we were we were all shocked by that and so we sort of dug into the submission numbers and our rejection numbers and we found uh that there were just sort of deep systemic issues and things like when i reject uh, a female writer and ask for more work, she's half as likely to resubmit as a male writer. Male writers are almost 100% will resubmit and women only 50%. So I sort of had to double up my efforts with women that I, I actually really did want to submit. You know, right. and, uh, and wasn't there also an issue that even if you got a woman writer, say, for the Lost and Found column about o- old books, that often the men would be the ones who were getting reviewed by the yeah, woman writer? Yeah. So the Lost and Found column is you can write about any underappreciated or out-of-print book. And we, we were soliciting equal numbers of men and women to write about it, but both were picking 80% men. So that's part, partly historical. If you're talking about out-of-print books, you know, they're, you're drawing from a pool. But it's still, it's your chance to champion, you know, underappreciated women writers if you're a woman or even if you're a man. So right. now we specifically ask, you know, are there any women that or you know, now we're actually doing this specifically for people of color. Yeah. You know, or LGBT voices, like are there, you know, kind of lost voices out there or pioneer voices that should be brought back? Yeah. I I wanted to ask you also about the origins of Tin House's bi-coastal nature, because reading this memoir, I read all the symbolism into that. You come from a divided city. You've created a divided (laughs) magazine. But also, like I think about the tension that you describe in the book between Ken Kesey and Hunter S. Thompson. Right. And you're also living some of your life like out in the mountains mm-hmm. in Colorado and some of it in New York. And is that is that all fertile ground for how you came up with a, a magazine that straddles both coasts? Wow. That's um Or am I just reaching? That, no, that's really good. That's really <laughs> good. It wasn't it wasn't actually in, well, the intentionality was that our publisher, Wynn McCormick, was based mainly here in Portland and mm-hmm. he wanted to uh, start a magazine here in Portland and I loved the idea but I at the time when we agreed to start the magazine in 98 New York was still sort of the epicenter of literary culture I mean it's less so now I mean it's a little more divide you know it's spread out but at the time it really there were very few agents outside of there and there was just mm. Uh, I thought there needed to still be a big presence there. So I argued from the start that it should be bi-coastal, that I would stay in New York, but I would come back and forth because I loved the energy and the no BS of Portland. But I thought we still needed the sort of, you know, the professional, you know, whatever. But uh, right from the start, there was a, a kind of great 
energetic split that I loved because I would bring something that would, you know, one of the New York editors would bring something that was hyped to the Portland people and they'd be like, yeah, and... You know, it's just like there was a, like a, yeah. A totally different orientation. Yeah, there was like, I don't huh. care, whatever. And, yeah. You know, so huh. there was a little more wide-eyedness and, and skepticism yeah. of things that were hyped, you know, in the literary world. So so now that you've, you're experiencing being on the other side of all of this, you're on book tour, 30 events in 30 days, uh, you're, you're talking about in a way that's more vulnerable about specifics of your actual personal life. Um and your work has been received by both your dad and the the critics as oh, that you have created art out of your life. Uh, does this inspire you to to do another book? Eventually, <laughs> eventually, yeah. I think um, it would be very very different. I mean, I I could see um, writing about my experiences with Tin House and all the writers I've worked with. I mean, mm -hmm. that that kind of thing um, down the line doing that, but. Right now, this still feels a little fresh. I'm still trying to figure it out. So, yeah. um, well, you know, tell it's a, us. It's oh, a little bit of a shock to actually see it. You know, I was yeah. like, "Wait, it's a thing." You know, so yeah. I think when I have a little more distance on it, I'll be able to, to you know, well, to what, go back. What What projects are on the horizon for you at the moment? Um, well, I'm very involved in, you know, as you said in the introduction, in various nonprofits, particularly Narrative 4 these days, which is a, a story exchange organization that works with uh, mainly teenagers and putting kids together to exchange stories. And I was recently in Palestine and Israel, and I'm uh, going, we're having our annual summit in Ireland in two months. So hmm. that's kind of occupying a lot of my mental spaces doing that those kind of things, as well as Tin House. Right. You know, Tin House is still, I, I love my job. I get paid to read for a living. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. And there's still, you know, every, every issue I get surprised and excited by something. Hmm. So if I'm not surprised and excited by something or proven wrong, that's, that's, why I keep doing the job is I love to be proven wrong. I love to see something that, oh, you can do that? Like, that's, you know, like a Maggie Nelson comes along and you're like, right. it's like what wow. the hell <laughs> is this? I have no idea what it is, but whatever she's doing, it's working. Yeah. Or you see like a Mary Ruifel poem and you're just like, I have no idea how she's making these leaps and I really don't care because it's <laughs> awesome, you know? Yeah. So... Yeah. Well, absolutely. it was a delight to have you on the show and also to read All Tomorrow's Parties. Hey, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. We're talking today to Rob Spillman, co-founder of Tin House and the author of the memoir, All Tomorrow's Parties. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>